From whose womb did the ice go forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the land? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Friends, you've had many, many chapters of complaining and arguing. Job actually believing and thinking that he could argue his case before God and he would be right and God would be wrong. And then God responds with a litany of questions of his own. And the first point I think that this is trying to make is to recognize the power and providence of God. To recognize the power and the providence of God. It begins with God speaking out of a whirlwind. It begins with power. God showing himself strong, speaking from a whirlwind. Why whirlwind? God reveals himself in many ways in the Old Testament. When God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he came to Abraham as, as a man. Whenever God revealed himself to Isaiah, we sang about it in holy, holy, holy. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And the robe of his train filled the temple. He's he's seen as glorious. The king has died. It's a time of uncertainty. But God is on his throne, and he's all-powerful. He's ruling, he's reigning. The fact that the king is dead has not changed God's rule. And God is so powerful that when he speaks... The place shakes. That's Isaiah chapter 6. God is immeasurably great. And God responds to Job with some questions of his own. Verse 2 indicates the point. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The point here for Job is that he is lacking in knowledge. He is lacking in understanding. And I believe this is essential for us when we deal with trials and difficulties and struggles because so often there's going to be things that happen to us that we're not going to understand or comprehend. And this is the way the book of Job concludes with God making it very clear to Job and then to us that we lack understanding. We lack understanding. We need to recognize the power and the providence of God. His ways are beyond our understanding. Look at it, it begins with the theater of creation here. All God did in creating the world. Look at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Notice again this question about understanding. This question intended to show Job's lack of understanding. Obviously Job was not there at the foundation of the world. None of us were, but God was. Verse 5, who determines its measurements? Friends, God has determined the height of every mountain and the depth of every ocean trench. God has determined its measurements. His ways and His power are beyond our understanding. Look at verses 17 and 18. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Obviously the the answer to those questions are no. Who's seen the gates of death? Who's seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 18, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? He's he's indicating Job's ignorance of these things. Declare if you know all this. Look at verse 21. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. 
What's interesting about this verse is it shows that God uses sarcasm. Uh, in correcting his servant. Job was way out of line in this book. And here you see God uses sarcasm to indicate the ignorance of Job. It's qu it can be quite a helpful tool, especially when it's used without, by one who does not sin. Look at verses 22 and 23. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble? For the day of battle and war, God answers Job's distresses by sh showing him and telling him, Job, there is so much you don't understand. And there is going to be so much suffering and trials and tragedies that we endure that this is going to have to be a big part of the conclusion. I don't understand all that God is doing or why God does all that he does. That's how God answers Job. Now, one of the interesting things here is God never answers Job's why questions. Why this happened to Job is never answered directly. What God does is he reveals to Job his power and his providence. That he's ruling over all and he's in control of all. And his ways are beyond our understanding. Now look at how he demonstrates his power and his providence. Look at verses 8 through 11. And the emphasis here on his power. We looked just a minute ago at the emphasis on Job's and our lack of understanding. Now look at the emphasis on God's power. First of all, in reference to the waves. Talk about a powerful force on earth. The water, the ocean. Look at what God says about that in verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. God made the clothes for the ocean and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. Notice the limits of the ocean. Why does the ocean stop where it stops? God prescribed the limits. No man can do that. Look at verse 11. And said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Notice God there assails the pride of the ocean. Its waves are strong and mighty, not to God. He's prescribed its limits. Look at verses 12 and 13. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Notice that. Look, look at God's control, his providence. He commands the morning. Where does that thing come from every day? God commands it. And cause the dawn to know its place. Now look at its purpose in verse 13, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. There's a little clue that God will deal with the wicked in his time and in his way. Think the wicked are too strong for God to deal with? That seems to be part of Job's indictment that's incorrect. Look at verses 31 to 33 where he, he brings Job to the constellations. Can you bind the chains of the Pilates or loose the cords of Orion? That, that Orion constellation that you'll see as you travel the world, you look up and there's Orion. Up there, those three big stars and that constellation. God gave him his belt. God leads the stars out. Look at verse 33. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Obviously, the answer to these is no. Look at verse 35. This is one of my favorites. And, and, and this, this poetry includes a lot of personification of natural powers that God controls. Look at 35. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. 
God sends forth lightnings and the lightnings, the lightning bolt says to God, here we are, we're ready to do God's bidding. That bolt through the air, the sky, that may seem and look random and is incredibly powerful, it's under the command and authority of God. It's taking orders from God. We need to remember the power and providence of God. He knows what he's doing in our circumstances. That's the answer to Job. I know a lot more than you know, Job, and I can do a lot more than you can do. In fact, I can do all things. Nothing is impossible to me. God's power and providence is displayed. So he, he first shows this and demonstrates this to Job in the theater of creation. Then he takes Job essentially to the zoo and wants, wants to show him an interesting menagerie of animals to again prove this point. Look at it in chapter 39 beginning in verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 38, beginning in verse 39. The end of 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home, the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture. He searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will, you? will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because, of his, because his strength is great? And will you leave him to your labor? Do you have faith in him? That he will return your grain and gather it? To your threshing floor, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But, they, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes... Behold it from far away, his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. Look at all that God is doing in the animal kingdom. He's at work. 
he is at work. Look at chapter 38 there in verse 41. Who provides for the raven its prey? Friends, where does the raven's prey come from? It comes from God. When its young ones cry to God for help, you know those baby birds who they're really crying out to? They're crying out to God. Who ultimately is the one that feeds them? It's God. That's how involved God is in the creation. Which incidentally, Jesus uses this imagery to encourage his followers not to be anxious. Because not a sparrow falls apart from our Father. Friends, if God is interested in birds and takes care of every bird, he will certainly take care of you. There is no reason to be anxious. That's part of the point God is trying here to make to Job. Job, I take care of mountain goats. You don't know about it, but I've got this taken care of. It's in my hand. Look at chapter 39, verses 13 through 18. This is one of my favorites, the ostrich. After he talks about the donkey and the, the oxen, these domesticated animals for work, he, he uses an odd example. The ostrich. Why the ostrich? Why this example? Because this example is an anomaly. The ox kind of makes sense. That he can be trained to serve and to work and to help. But the ostrich? This is just to look upon the ostrich is to laugh. Have you ever looked into the face of an ostrich? This is a ridiculous looking creature. And its actions are even more ridiculous. And that's the point here. That's by God's design. The ostrich defies logic. Even birds like ravens take care of their babies. This seems to be built into the, the DNA of most every living being that a mother takes care of her young. Not so with the ostrich. This is a bizarre beast. How did it get that way? What a bizarre-looking bird that just leaves its babies behind. The ostrich is so dumb, it thinks it can go up against a horse. And for, in the ancient world, the horse is essentially a killing machine on the battlefield. And this dumb bird is so proud that it, it laughs at the horse and its rider. Why, how'd that happen? Verse 17, God has made her forget wisdom. What is the explanation for this natural anomaly? God. God made her that way. We have to spend some time on the horse, right? Because I know at least a lot of the little girls love horses. And God says some things about the horse. Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Why is he so strong and so muscular that with a whip of his neck he can end your life? With a kick of his foot, you can be dead. Or clothe his, his neck with a mane. I mean, why, is, why does he have that long bunch of hair? God. Look at what it says. Verse 22, he laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. That, that, that a, a horse can be trained to, to fight in the midst of gunfire or clashing swords. And again, throughout the history of the ancient world, this is the essentially military killing machine that makes a difference. If you want to look at Genghis Khan and try to understand how he was able to do what he was able to do, which by the way, his genetic line continues. Amazing. 
It was because of his mounted cavalry that could shoot the bow while mounted. William the Conqueror. I hope you're going to celebrate William the Conqueror Day coming up. In 1066, conquers England. You know how? He was short and he was fat. And he could ride a horse and shoot his bow mounted at full speed. He and his horse were a killing machine on the battlefield. This is an incredible beast. Where did its strength come from? Why is it the way it is? Verse 25, the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. Right, most of the, the field mice and the chipmunks scatter when the trumpet sounds and the cavalry rushes. The, the horse, this is what he's living for. He smells the battle from afar and the thunder of captains and the snorting. Why? That's how God made him. God is involved in and doing things we do not understand, but he is involved. And that's part of the point here. It's kind of like a military general. Military generals often have information that their troops do not have. And military generals and commanders direct their troops to certain places on the battlefield based on the information they have, but the troops don't always have that information. The troop may not know, or the unit or the battalion may not know why it's so significant to take that mountain or to defend that valley. But why does the general send them there? Because he knows more than they do. And friends, at a, at a, at a spectacularly larger extent, God knows more than we know. And he's involved in more than we know. Friends, we need to remember his power and his providence. That's God's answer to Job. Remember my power. Remember my rule. And then secondly, we should respond with humility. Respond with humility. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. All through these chapters, Job has wanted his chance to speak to God. Proudly, he's defended himself and asserted that God is in the wrong. And now God addresses him as a fault finder. And here's the key word, the Almighty. The Almighty. Look what Job does in verse 3. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. You see what has happened? You read the book and God's revelation of his power has changed Job's disposition. Job's disposition is totally altered now because of what God has said about himself. And what Job finally sees clearly is that he did not see clearly. Job was not seeing clearly. And in one sense, no human being can. We look and we see in a mirror dimly. You know what that analogy is in 1 Corinthians 13? It's another one of these examples from the ancient world, kind of hard for us to understand. Whenever Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, mirrors were not like the mirrors we have today. If you go into this bathroom, you see a a fairly decent reflection of yourself. Mirrors in the ancient world are more like a carnival mirror. They're all distorted. They're all, they're, it's, it's like polished glass that is going to distort your visage. That is what God says. That is how our perspective is when we look at the world and when we try to understand the world. We look through a glass dimly, but there's coming a day when we will see as face to face. 
And in the midst of it, we need to respond with humility. Verse 4, behold, I am of small account. Friends, we should understand how small we are. We should understand, we must understand how small we are. And we also need to understand our limits. Verse 5, I have spoken once and will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. You understand your limits. In revealing himself to Job, God has designed these questions to point out Job's lack of understanding, which should lead to his humility. How do you respond to God's revelation of his power and glory, which the Bible is full of? We should respond by recognizing how small we are in light of all that God is doing, in light of all of his plans and his workings. God doesn't answer the why questions for Job. He shows him his power and he humbles him. Essentially, the why questions in Job are dispelled by the who. The who overshadows and consumes the why because of his glory and his might. And friends, that's why when you go through distress, one of the best things you can do is meditate on the glory and might of God. That's what we need more than anything else in life, especially in trial, is God. We need to see God as he is. We need to remember God as he is. Essentially, Job, is, is it as if you have forgotten these things? That's why one of the best things you can do is read. Read these chapters in Job. Ruminate on these chapters in Job. And think about God. Consider God. We need to be reminded of God. And then how do we respond? We should respond with humility. To stand in awe of God is much better than to argue with God. To argue with God is a fool's errand. It's one of the lessons of the book of Job. And it's so tempting. And again, the temptation is essentially as if I could manage my life, these things, those decisions, these circumstances better than God. We can't. We can't. Stand in awe of him. His questions are designed to humble us. Now, in conclusion, I want you to think about something here. I believe it is of great comfort, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to preach this overview of Job. It is of great comfort and great consolation to be reminded of God's greatness and our smallness. I think you'll find this all through Scripture. God reminds us of His greatness and of our smallness to help us. To help us. You look at David, this great warrior, human to human. He's kind of like the Genghis Khan of the ancient world and what he was able to do for Israel. He's an incredibly competent man in many ways. And yet he recognizes he was only able to do what he could do because of God. He doesn't have confidence in his abilities. It's the Lord who made him run through a troop. It's the Lord who gave him strength. It's the Lord who trained his hands for war. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. Well, that's humility, and you see it all through the passage of Scripture, that this is a, a consolation to us to be reminded of God's greatness and our smallness in maybe some small way. I think every, even unbelievers experience 
this when they go to places like the Grand Canyon. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? What does that make them feel like? What does that make? What is a person's response to that creation? Is it, wow, I could do that. That's nothing. Man, give me a spade. I've easily done. Or they go to the, 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 the foot of Yosemite and look up and or what's the mountain? Half Dome? Yosemite? They go to the foot of Half Dome and look up. Oh, I could build that. No, it's humbling to recognize how great God is and what he's done and how small I am in comparison. But why does God answer Job like this? Why is it that his power and his providence is such a powerful consolation? And it is. This is why people who ignore the providence and rule and glory of God are just missing out pastorally. Here's the greatest help for hurting people is the power and glory of God. Why is it such a big help and consolation to recognize God's power and my smallness? Well, I think it's kind of like the child that runs to his mother's arms. I think that's why. The child who's been injured... And that child runs to the one in his life who will take care of it all. That, that baby runs to his mom. That child runs to his mom's arm because she's going to take care of everything, isn't she? She's going to take care of it. Friends, he takes care of everything. You understand that? This is why recognizing his glory and power reminds you he can take care of anything and he will. He will. And also, why does the child run to the, the mom in need of help, whatever the, the distress or the difficulty, or the adult? The adult hurt out on the job site, the military man hurt on the battlefield, cries out in pain for help because we need help. The child who runs to the mom, the injured military man, the person on the construction site that's hurt, calls out for help. Why? Because there's times in life you need help. And friends, we recognize there's one who ultimately can help and who will help, and who has helped. He's helped preeminently and primarily through sending Jesus to die for our sins. Demonstration of his love and mercy in the face of all the difficulties of this life that, friend, are coming to a quick end because we're going to be dead soon. It's just the reality of it. But in the midst of that, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins to be raised from the dead so that through faith in him. You know through faith in Jesus, you become part of an eternal kingdom. Talk in this sermon about some of these ancient rulers. Genghis Khan and David, their, their, their kingdoms are dust. God's kingdom's eternal. Through Jesus Christ, you're part of it. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray you'd bring consolation through your word and the revelation of yourself. That there'd be great filling of hearts with hope. Lord, that you have your plans and your purposes, and God, that you are ruling. That God, you give birth to the dewdrops. You've begotten them, and Lord, you care for us. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you, recognizing we don't understand so much. But Lord, help us to act on what we do understand. That you are glorious in might and incomparable in power. And God, help us to respond in humility. Humility that trusts Jesus. Humility that turns from our own self-sufficiency, denies ourselves, take up, takes up the cross, and follows Christ. 
recognizing He is the Lord over all and the one to whom we all will give an account. So God, help us to be humbled by Your power and might, humble, humble enough to receive Jesus as Lord and live for Him. So Lord, help us. I pray You do a work in our lives now. In Jesus' name, amen.